Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We are in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18, and we just prayed. Um, if you were not here recently, I'm going to bring you up to date. Um, the backstory for Matthew is uh, we are less than a year from the cross. Jesus has been ministering, healing, teaching, and uh, the disciples have grown in faith tremendously, and yet Chapter 18 begins with the astonishing insanity of their question, which one of us is the greatest? It's just an astounding thing, their lack of faith. Jesus puts a child in their midst. We did this last week and says, you want to be the greatest? Be like this, humble, teachable, childlike. That's verses uh, 1 to 4. Um, Verse 5, he talks about receiving other believers, other Christians in his name, and that there's a direct connection. That's the whole theme of that early part of 18 between Jesus and his people. That if you are kind to a fellow believer in need, that Jesus sees that as you being kind to him. Amazingly. Uh, verses uh, the, the 6 and 7 is the flip side of that. If you do bad things or tempt a Christian to sin, it would be better for you to be drowned with a big millstone hung around your neck. Don't tempt people to sin, either directly by, here, try this alcohol or these drugs or look at these dirty pictures or whatever it may be, or indirectly by our own lifestyle and example, we can tempt others. Well, he's a Christian and he's doing it. I guess I'll do it as well. Very important that we are careful. Um, that we not lead a believer to sin. Verses 8 and 9 are always in the list of hard sayings of Jesus, um, which is if your hand causes or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That whole section, two verses, deal with the fact that sin is so bad. We are to deal radically with it as if you would, if someone said, by the way, you have a big black widow spider on your neck. You wouldn't just say, thanks, I'll get to that tomorrow when I have time. You would deal with it immediately. He's saying deal radically with sin. Don't, uh, verse 10, don't despise or look down on any believer. Uh, that's the humility thing again. Verses 12 to 14, God knows each of his sheep by name. And if one of the hundred wanders away, guess what? He goes and seeks after that one that's lost. We ought to have that same heart. If we notice, hey, so-and-so hasn't been in church in a while, go seek him out, find him. Um, then there's a long section, 15 to 17, on in, within the church, if there's a sinning brother, how we are to um, treat that sinning brother. <clears throat> what we're not to do is gossip or yell at him, but go to him one-on-one. -on -one present his fault to him. If he repents, you've won your brother back. If that doesn't work, you take two or three, this is last week, five to seven, 15 to 17, take two other people from the church pleading with him. The goal is not to shame him. The goal is restoration and repentance of a brother. It ties right in with the lost sheep. We're doing what Jesus would do. If he doesn't listen to the two or three, you tell it to the whole church, which would mean people would be calling him like crazy in a big church, saying, what's wrong with you, Harold? You need to come back to the faith. Why are you sinning in this way? If he doesn't listen to all of them, then the procedure is to remove him from the church, treat him like an unbeliever, pray for him, and still part of 
treating him with an unbeliever. I read this whole thing after Bible study last week. Treating, with him, treating him as an unbeliever has the idea of shunning him from the church. However, what do you do with an unbeliever? You witness to him, right? Because he's sort of acting like an unbeliever. So that's all in love, all with the goal of restoration. Um, then we learned about having his spirit and following scripture that we're binding and loosing just what scripture already says. We talked about that last week. Um, the last two verses right before we get to where we're going to be are 18 and 19. And then we'll start in verse 20. 18 ver says, "What I tell you the truth, whatever you bind. Oh, no, I skipped that one. Sorry. 19. I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. That's the power of corporate prayer. And it doesn't need to be, <clears throat> excuse me, a thousand people or 200 people, two or three. Does that mean I'm not being heard by myself? No, of course you are. But there's something about Christians agreeing on what they're praying for that is unbelievably powerful. And lastly, verse 20, where two or three are gathered or come together in my name, in the name of Jesus, for the purpose, the reason we're coming together is not to play shuffleboard, it's Jesus, to study the word, to worship, to praise, to pray, whatever it may be. He says, there I am with them. He's claiming um, deity, really, because he's claiming omnipresence, to be able to be in all places at one time. Pretty amazing thing. Um, so that's where we left off. Let's pick it up in verse 21 of Matthew 18. So I know that you're awake. Say, Amen. Amen. Very good. And, and those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Somebody raised their hand, I see. Okay, beautiful. All right, we're in Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Some translations have 77 times. The number doesn't matter. What really is being said here is more than just a certain number. So I want to discuss the verse 21. The, what's the spirit of Peter's question? Jesus came Peter came to Jesus, how many times, Lord, shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven? I think there's two motives for Peter. Motive number one, aren't I holy seven times? I think he feels a little magnanimous and proud of himself that he's willing to forgive up to seven times. Now, in that era, the rabbis that wrote at that time said that the number was, you ready? Three. For the same sin she sinned against me, I'm going to forgive her. That's one. I'm counting. That's two. I'm counting. Three. Sorry, Janet, you're out. Three, or it would be four, actually. I forgave her three times. The rabbis are not writing scripture, by the way. What's the principle behind this? I think Peter's looking for a way out. I don't mean out of Christianity. I mean a way to say, that's it. I reached my limit for forgiveness. Aren't you glad that God doesn't reach his limit for forgiveness with you? So 
That's the, the question. How many times shall I forgive my brother? And he thinks he's being magnanimous with seven. Peter, we're still in chapter 18. He still lacks the humility of the early part of the chapter, right? So he's asking about forgiveness. He's not even asking about what if he sins against his brother? It's always somebody sinning against me because we're all a little self-centered, if you will. Um, so let's see. Like I said, NIV has 77 times. The Greek is a little hard to pin down. Most translations have 70 times 7, which would be 490 if you have a calculator, which is kind of ridiculous because can you imagine counting? That's 370. I got 120 more, and then that's it for her. Or That's kind of ridiculous. Does he really mean 490? No. The number is meant to mean keep on forgiving let your no limit good joe to your forgiveness for somebody else you say but i feel like i'm a doormat he's going to make an analogy here about how much you've been forgiven vertically meaning from god and then the analogy will be forgiving horizontally somebody else right one other thing before we dive into this keep in mind because i'm afraid i'll forget to say it there's one person, or maybe two, who've never had to have been forgiven. And it's God the Father who forgives so freely, and Jesus Christ. I mean, you could add the Holy Spirit, I suppose. Oh, we're hearing major rain now, aren't we? That's a good thing. You know why? Because we're indoors. Okay. All right. Um, um, the 77, if that's the correct number, it doesn't mean at 78 you can stop forgiving. The reason 77 comes up is Genesis 4:24. Lamech says, and he's wrong when he says this, if Cain, remember Cain situation, if Cain is avenged, avenged 70-fold, then Lamech 77-fold. It's a, kind of a big ego thing. Um, Jesus turns his bad example around and says, unlimited. Keep in mind, even if the number was three, guess what 1 Corinthians says in, in chapter 13 when it talks about love? Love keeps no record of wrongs, sins, meaning what? Don't be counting. Um, so it's all about unlimited forgiveness. Uh, I want you to keep your finger here and go to Matthew 6. It's important that we see this. Because I'm going to guess, and I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess there's somebody within the sound of my voice, either on Zoom or here in this room, that still has not forgiven somebody for something. And I understand what they did might have been so horrendous, it would make our hair curl. But I want you to read at the end of, the middle of and the end of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. We're just going to skip down. We did that several weeks ago. We're going to skip down to verse 12. Forgive us our debts. Some translations have transgressions. The Bible equates sin, transgression, transgression of the law, with a debt cosmically in heaven. You with me so far? Forgive us our debts. Notice the next word, as. I'm going to let you know that that word means in the same way that. Watch. Forgive us our debts in the same way that we also have forgiven our debtors. 
That Lord, the Lord's Prayer is an invitation to God. Listen, we always hear the first part. Forgive us our debts. Yes, forgive us our sins. Read the whole sentence. Lord, forgive my sins, my debts, the same way I've forgiven people that have sinned against me. Ouch. Now, do you still have somebody you need to forgive? Do I have somebody I need to forgive? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Look at verse 14. The prayer has ended, but this is Jesus' commentary on that section. Watch, 14, uh, Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men when, and women when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly your Father will not forgive your sins. Is that unclear to anybody? I don't know how you could twist that to me. Well, he doesn't really mean, yes, he does. Are we saying then that salvation is of works and the work is forgive others, that's how you get forgiveness? No. Imagine two apple trees that we bring in in a big pot, okay? This one over here has no fruit. The leaves are falling off like crazy. This apple tree is loaded with fruit. You got the picture? Dead or dying, alive. Listen, the fruit of salvation is things like love, which we're commanded to do. Forgiveness. The forgiveness doesn't save us. It's an evidence that there is actually new life there. This tree is not alive because there's apples. The tree we know is alive because there's apples, but that's not the only reason it's alive. The apples, the fruit, is an evidence that there's life. No life over here. The Christian who will not forgive his brother who sinned against him, that gives evidence that he has not understood the depth the number, sheer number of sins God has forgiven vertically. The person, if he's honest, also understands, I was forgiven vertically, and here it comes, I didn't deserve to be forgiven. I'm forgiven on the basis of Jesus Christ dying for my sins, paying the price in full, in faith, because I believe that, I'm forgiven. I don't deserve forgiveness in and of myself. So, not forgiving a brother horizontally is evidence that you haven't understood or that it hasn't sunk into your heart that you've been forgiven far more. The, the parable that's going to follow this shortly is going to explain that. But I wanted you to see Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer and afterwards. For a person who is not forgiving somebody who claims to be a Christian, but I just can't forgive so-and-so, for what he did to me or what she did to me, listen, is speaking judgment on themselves every time they pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive me, forgive us our debts the same way that I forgive so-and-so. Yikes. It's absolutely essential. But the question must arise in somebody's heart, somebody's mind, I don't have it in me to forgive so-and-so, I just don't. You don't know what I went through. I'm sure I don't know what you went through. I'm sure also you don't have it in you. I don't have it in me. It's just not natural for people 
to forgive. If I go to your fancy house and you have all antique furniture and you say, you know, this chair, this whole set is from the 17th century. We bought it at an auction in San Francisco and wow, it's wonderful. Well, I weigh about 195 pounds and it's a little rickety chair and I'm a little worried about it, but I'm, you know, okay. I sit in the chair and I break it. And the guy doesn't want to tell me, but it's $3,500. The one chair is worth. It's an antique. King Charles III, I made that up, used to sit in it. Okay, so I have incurred a debt, haven't I? Who broke the chair? Me. Can't blame anybody else. I broke the chair. The truth is, I owe this guy $3,500. He says... Don't worry about it. I forgive you. Don't even, don't even think about it. And he gets the pieces and kind of gets them out of there so it's not the subject of conversation. But I did break the chair. But it's all forgiven. Yay. And I go out to my car and I drive home and that's the end of that. Wrong. Somebody is going to suffer that debt. It was mine. And now it vanished into thin air. No, it didn't. He's paying, isn't he? Don't worry about it. I got it. No debt goes unpaid. That includes our sins vertically. Every sin that's ever been committed on planet Earth is paid in full by the end of the world. What do you mean? I mean either the person pays in hell forever. We're going to get to that in the parable. Or... Jesus paid on the cross. No other third option. I'm going to work it off with good works. A lot of people think that. Judgment day comes, it's, you know, God looks at your life, did some bad things, but your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds just barely, you're in. Not biblical. As a matter of fact, and this is a poor analogy because it's not really true, but it is. I like to tell people, imagine that every sin you've ever committed in your life costs a million dollars in heaven. Ouch. You want to take a guess on what your debt is? How many trillion, quadrillion? But don't worry because every good deed you do is worth a nickel. And darn it, if you work hard, you will never get there. You need a savior. You don't want to pay. You don't want, remember this saying in, in American culture? I want what I deserve. No, you don't. Okay. So um, we are to keep on forgiving. Because of what we've been given vertically, we are to shine that out. The love, the grace, the forgiveness horizontally toward others. Yes, but they don't deserve it. And God says, neither did you. And I forgave you way more. Okay, so um, if you don't keep on forgiving, forget the religious aspect right now. Let's put that aside, although it's the most important thing, I agree. If you don't keep on forgiving, you will never have any of the following. A really solid marriage. You will never have a good relationship with any human being. I'll guarantee you, you know why? Because all you human beings, and me too, we're all flawed. We all screw up. We all mess up. We all sin. We all 
create problems, don't we? You'll never have a job you like. You'll never find a church, which is a bunch of sinful people saved by grace. So it's good for us to do this. Let's look at, uh, yeah, let's look at verse 23 and 24. Let me go back to 20. Uh, yeah, the, the whole point in verse 22 is not the number. He's saying it's an infinite number. Keep on forgiving. Don't keep record of wrongs. Verse 23, here comes the parable. Therefore, to illustrate it in context, forgiveness is the subject. Watch. Verse 23, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As I read the parable, I want you to think about the story, but I also want you to think, what's the spiritual application for each character? Listen, who is the king? Some of you already know the king is God. Okay, there's a servant that could be anybody, right? That is a servant of the king. We're all servants of the king if we're believers. The kingdom of heaven, let me read the whole thing. It's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He's going to do an audit, you might say. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, and we'll get to what that is, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to pay the debt. This was commonly done. We'll come back to that too. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, verse 28, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins or a hundred denarii. Or is it 200, I think, in, in, in New American Standard? No? In any case, a small debt. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees, does this sound familiar, and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. But he refused, instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master, that's the king, everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. He sort of reopened his account, didn't he? You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Oh, what a nice little story. And then he has to tack on the last line in case you think it doesn't involve you or me. This is how my heavenly father, who was playing the role of the king, will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister. Notice the last three words from your heart. That's different than just with words. Okay, I forgive you. Big difference. Let's go back to the top of the story and look at it. So, the kingdom of heaven, he says in verse 30, 23, sorry. 
is like a king, that's God. And there's going to be a reckoning day, settle accounts. But he's doing an audit before the final day. He's going to settle his accounts, all the bad loans, who owes what. And a man who owed him 10,000 talents comes in. Okay, so uh, what's going on here? First of all, in Greek culture, unlike today, because we have $34 trillion in debt in our country, right? And we know what a millionaire is and a billionaire and a trillion dollars. It's kind of all meaningless. In Greek culture, 10,000 was the highest current uh, uh, number that had a name. Okay, a myriad, myria in Greek, the largest numeral with a Greek term. So he's, it's like we would say when we were kids, a gazillion, right? Kind of thing. Next thing is a talent, which is 75 pounds of something precious, silver, gold, we don't know. Just 10,000, the highest number possible, talents, which was 75 pounds of silver, was one talent. Okay. In modern numbers, the, the amount of money we're talking about, if it's silver, is 1 billion on up. Depends. Two, three, four billion with a B. This is one person who owes this to the king. You ask, how could one guy? I don't know. Maybe it's just a story to make a point folks, kind of like 70 times seven. Okay, a talent, one talent, how many talents does he owe? 10,000. One talent was wages for one man working for 20 years. One talent, that alone would be, I got to work 20 years to pay it off. That's if he owed one, he owes 10,000. Are you getting the picture? It's an unpayable astronomical debt. Got it? And it's probably, for some reason, alone. So the king announces that since he can't pay, and no one could, what would be done is you would sell the person into slavery and the family. This was commonly done, and everything they had would be sold as well. Is that going to make up the 10,000 talents? Not even close. But he's going to write it off as a bad loan. The guy needs to be punished to send a message to the rest of the society. So slaves at the top price were one talent each, but usually way, 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 way less. Jesus is sold for 30 pieces of silver, not bags. Um, the word debt is danion, and it really means a loan. The king's writing off the loan as a bad debt. Okay, that alone is a show of grace, that he's going to put the guy in prison, his family with him. You should have thought of this before you got this far in debt. The poor family is being affected as well. So what does the guy say? Verse 26, he falls on his knees. It's a big show. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. Okay, now there's a great word the king could have said. How? How are you going to pay off this kind of debt? I'm going to invent a Tesla and Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft. Good luck, right? There's no way. He's lying. 
He's asking for grace, isn't he? Undeserved favor. He's asking for mercy. Please withhold the punishment that we both agree that I owe. But he's saying, I'll pay it back. Impossible. I want you to notice verse 27. A servant's master, that's the king, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Could have canceled the debt and thrown him in prison anyway. Cancels the debt, lets him go. All said and done. Look at verse 28. But when that servant went out, pause, wait, wait, wait. Did you see what's missing? Between 27 from being in debt a gazillion gazillions to, all right, I forgive the debt, you can go. What's missing? Thank you so much. If there's anything I can do for you, God bless you. Thank you. I can't believe you're going to do this. I don't read any of that here. He just, whew, I'm off the hook, right? Because it's all about me. Who is the man? It's you. It's me. So I wasn't in debt that much money. In heaven, yes, you were. All your sins. What's a sin? Any breaking of God's law, either actual or in your mind, right? Because lusting in your mind is the same as committing adultery, he says. Hating somebody in your mind is the same as committing murder. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So you add up every single thing you ever did or said or thought that was a sin. To that you add all the good things you should have and could have done that you didn't. Your debt and mine was astronomical in heaven. 10,000 talents. Billions, maybe a trillion dollars worth of debt that God has forgiven. Now let me ask you a question. Has anyone in your whole life ever sinned that much against you to where you go, the same out I owed God, that's what he owes me for what he did to me? There's no way. It's a much lesser debt. Now we come to the second part of the story. So what does the guy do? He remembers how much love he was shown and he shines his out horizontally to those around him. Wrong. Just the opposite. The servant's master took pity on him, 27, canceled the debt, let him go. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a very small amount. Comparatively, it's a fraction, one over six with five zeros. One six hundredth of the debt. Or is it, no, it's one six hundred thousandth, sorry, of the debt. So he finds somebody that owes him a very small amount. Let's make it a few hundred dollars. You've just been forgiven billions. So he says to the guy, first he chokes him. Do you see the physical violence there? Grabs him by the throat. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. This is the unforgiving servant. He was forgiven much. He's not willing to forgive even a little. His fellow servant, verse 29, Jesus is such a masterful storyteller, isn't he? Notice the wording is the same. Fell to his knees, sound familiar? Begged him, sound familiar? 
be patient with me and I will pay it back. Can the guy pay back the few hundred dollars? Sure. How about it? We'll do a little payment plan, $10 a month and a few years it'll be paid. Have patience with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. No grace. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into what would be debtor's prison. Does he have the right to do this legally? Surprisingly, the answer is yes. He does owe the money. I can prove it. He owes me $250, whatever it is. Throw him in debtor's prison until he could pay the debt. But the other servants saw what happened. Verse 31, they went and tell the king and they're enraged. They get it. No grace being shown after that much forgiveness was given, that much grace, that much love. May I say, beyond all the love God has shown you, all the grace, good things you don't deserve, all the mercy, bad things you do deserve that he withholds, all of the forgiveness, we've already talked about that. Add to that, every drop of water or liquid you've ever drank was from God. Every bite of food you ever had, every morsel was from God. Any gift or talent or ability you have is from God. The fact that your lungs, everybody go, the fact that your lungs work and they've been working since you got in here, you didn't even think about it. You took it for granted and your heart is still beating. It's all grace. Let's face it. Okay. Stop beating the dead horse, Joe. Move on. Okay. Sorry. He has the guy thrown into debtor's prison. They tell the master. Verse 32, the master calls the servant in. Get him back in here. The case is reopened. You wicked servant. Is what he did wicked? Absolutely. Well, it's only a minor debt, though. What makes it so wicked is not that he didn't forgive. It's that he didn't forgive after being forgiven that gigantic amount. That much love is supposed to pour over you and change you, soften your heart to the point that you, you're able to forgive anything because you remember this relationship and what went on. So he says, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. That was merciful, that was kind, that was soft-hearted of me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant Look, just as I had on you, remember Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as, in the same way that, we have forgiven those who have sinned against us, trespassed against us, uh, our debtors. In anger, verse 34, his master handed him over to the jailers. This is unusual. To be tortured till he should pay back all he owed. Wait, what's the debt again? 10,000 talents. So how long is he going to be tortured? Forever. He'll never pay it back, right? It's a picture of hell, death and hell, forever paying off a debt. Okay, so did the man lose his salvation? No. How do you know? He never had it. The offer of, of forgiveness was given to him. He showed by, he's the fruit with no tree, no apples. I'm an apple tree. No, really, look. Not really, not without any apples. An apple tree with no apples in season is a useless, dead apple tree. So, um, let's see. The king reminds him of, his, of the mercy he's been showed. Um, 
Normally, what would happen is the guy would go to prison. You know who was tortured? Debtors? No. Criminals. Wait, what's his crime? The king says your crime is unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is unforgivable. Because it shows you never received the forgiveness and understood it in the first place. When you are treated with that kind of love to not love him back, what, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, vertical, horizontal. Let me tell you, without this one, which comes first, the forgiveness from God, the love from God, you and I are incapable of forgiving all sin, incapable of loving human beings, especially the unlovely and the unlovable. And there's a lot of you in this room. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. Tormentors, tortured criminals. Um, forgiveness is the fruit, a fruit of salvation. It's an important one to God, isn't it? Or it wouldn't be in the Lord's Prayer with that little explanation for if you don't forgive your brother, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That's pretty clear. It's a fruit that's very important. It is not work salvation, but it is a fruit. Okay, now I want to talk about, as we said, somebody pays when Joe breaks the chair at the fancy house. The guy was willing to absorb the debt. Maybe he paid to have the chair fixed, thousands of dollars, I don't know. I'm off scot-free. However, if I leave here and somebody bumps my car, a little dent and, you know, although a little dent, right, 2,500, what for that? Can I be as forgiving as the forgiveness I received? It's only, it ought to be only natural, but it's not. Because without the Holy Spirit living inside of you, it's all about me. And you hit my car, Tom. You better pay up. Are you forgetting about the, yes, I am. Not good. Okay. I want to give you another principle here. We've said that God's forgiven a huge debt. It's not money. It's a sin debt. Now I want you to imagine the cumulative debt of all humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. An incalculable number now, right? Zeros from here to San Diego, right? A huge debt. Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross for the sins, listen, of the world. Does that mean everybody's saved? No. He wrote the check for salvation. Those who believe wrote their name on the back and took it to the bank. Those who don't believe went, ha ha, funny, and threw it away. Yeah. But he died for the sins of the world. We um, have to understand, listen, every sin has a victim. Well, no, some. I mean, if I lie to him, then he's the victim. If I rip him off, he's the victim. I get that. But if I'm just greedy or I just lie to people or I'm lustful, there's really no, nobody that I'm sinning against wrong. If I'm married, I'm sinning against my wife if I'm lustful. But the Bible teaches a weird thing. And that is that 
All sin, listen, all sin is against God. David sins with Bathsheba. That's between him and Bathsheba and her husband and his many wives. Don't get me started on all that. But no, no. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. Joseph is in Potiphar's house. Do you remember? And Potiphar's wife is a little haughty that's looking for a little action, tries to seduce Joseph, and he runs out of the house. She grabs his robe, and he runs out without any clothes on because he does not want to sin. Doesn't want to sin against who? Potiphar's wife? Potiphar? No. Joseph says, I have it here somewhere, uh, how could I sin and do such a wicked thing? How could I do such a wicked thing? Listen, thing and sin against God. So all those sins in my life that I thought it was just me. Yes, I used drugs. Yes, I got drunk. Nobody was really harmed. Maybe my lungs aren't what they could be, but every sin I committed was against God. Now are you starting to see how much debt, the debt clock for Joe? When I get to heaven, I'm going to see the debt clock is set to zero. Undeservedly, all because Jesus took all that wrath of the whole world. Let's take our two-minute break, stretch our aging bodies, and make sure you say hello to somebody you don't know. Very important. And those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. We're here to study the book of Matthew chapter 18. And we've got this interesting discussion going about 
forgiveness. This is a guy that was forgiven a lot and won't forgive back to somebody else a little. Why not? He needs the money? Maybe. May I suggest he's not willing to forgive because he thinks you, Mr. Debtor, who owe me 200 bucks, you're different than me. And he's not. Because they're both debtors, it's just the amount that's different. We want to distance ourselves from those who sinned against us without realizing we've sinned against a holy God, which is worse than sinning against a person. Okay. So we are supposed to forgive uh, at the end of verse, is it 34, he asked? Um, shouldn't, uh, let's see. Yeah, 34 in his anger. No, 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you until you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. One last thing. Some scholars disagree with what I'm telling you in one aspect, and that's this. What is the debtor's prison that the guy's thrown into forever um, where he's tortured? Is that hell? The majority opinion in, in many commentaries is, yes, it's hell. But I be, want to be as fair as I can be and tell you that there is another theory about that, and it's this. The absolute worst torture is the torture of a guilty conscience. When all you have is time to think about how wrong you were, that it will eat you alive. The person that will not forgive others, in a sense, burns the bridge that he has to cross over to get to God, right? Once you burn that forgiveness bridge, you can try to get there. There's no way. You burn that bridge of forgiveness, it's impossible. Okay, so the elephant in the room I mentioned earlier. Now let's talk about it. Yes, that's all well and good, Joe, and theoretical, and it's beautiful and spiritual, but you don't know what he or she did to me. My father, my mother, my friend, this business guy, somebody beat me up in an alley. I don't know. They took everything I had and it destroyed my life. Listen, you're right. I don't know. And I know that you don't have it in you, as I said, because I don't have it in me. Vengeance is a very natural thing for unsaved man to get even, right? I'll find a way. You'll get yours kind of thing. What does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. By the way, he can repay way better than you and I can. Way better. Eternally. I can't. I don't have that power. Okay, so that's all great. I hear you, but you still don't get what I've been through. Listen. To the extent you and I can just sit and meditate on how much debt we owed in heaven. We tend to ignore it in our lives. Me, before I was a Christian, I didn't think about it. I owe God so much and I'm so sorry of sin. God makes you, number one, aware of your sin. Christianity is a weird religion in that it starts with bad news. No, it's gospel, it's good news. No, listen, you will never hear the gospel until you hear the bad news first. You are a hopeless sinner with no possible way to repent or save yourself. That's bad news. You're not going to make a lot of friends, but it's the truth. 
That's the x-ray that shows the tumor. Until you see that and understand the x-ray, you'll never consent to surgery. I don't need surgery. But Christianity is not surgery. It's a whole new beginning. You must be born again, spiritually alive. I am alive, not spiritually, born again, quickened in the Holy Spirit. So to the extent you and I understand how much we've been given, grace has poured down on us, love, forgiveness, patience. How patient is he with us? How impatient am I? One of my biggest faults, by the way. How impatient am I? How unloving am I? It, it's all a matter of, listen, reflecting the sun. And I don't mean S-U-N, I mean S-O-N. Jesus is on the cross. He is a bloody, swollen, ripped up mess, dying, and says, oh, get even. No. You know what he says? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Wow. So, the minute our hearts can feel that sort of love, it makes it that much easier to forgive others. One little asterisk sidebar. Forgiveness versus full reconciliation. Two different things. Christians make this mistake. I'm supposed to forgive like God forgives? In a sense. Okay, well then... Jeff did me wrong, and until he apologizes, I don't have to forgive him. Because didn't I have to confess my sin? Well, yes. God says nothing about that. He says, forgive him anyway. Because you know what? There'll be something about his apology that I'll go, not enough. You're not, you're not crying. You're not on your knees weeping, are you? You're not that sorry. Listen, forgive him, even if he's going about his life and doesn't care. Forgive him here. Where? From the heart. Ezekiel says that God one day, and the day is since Jesus died and rose, he'll give us a new heart with the ability not only to understand God's will and commune with God, but to forgive that kind of indiscretion, that kind of sin. Okay, what if he doesn't, and I see him, you could tell him you forgive him, but you don't have reconciliation yet. When does that come? Full reconciliation comes when he says, I'm told, you know what? I've really woken up in the last few years. Remember that thing I did to you in 1996? I am so sorry, Joe. Now you have full reconciliation, but even without that, we show the love. We have to forgive. We have to, because you know what? It'll eat you alive. Very, very important. That's why we're spending so much time on this. Um, forgiving not just with words, but from the heart. Um, besides, if he hasn't confessed and repented, am I casting myself now in the role of God? God deserves, the sin was against God. He needs to get right with God, and then can, he can get right with me. But even if he doesn't, forgive. Let it go. Um, yeah, we already talked about God has never had to uh, ask for forgiveness because he's never sinned. We have the greater forgiveness 
the greater obligation to forgive. Um, let me just look in at notes here. Luke 6.36, you don't need to turn there. Therefore, listen, be merciful, just as your heavenly Father is also merciful. Sometimes is it one-sided forgiveness? Yes. I'm forgiving him. He couldn't care less. I forgive him anyway. Hard to do? Absolutely. And don't miss the fact that you become the owner of that fancy $3,500 antique chair. Meaning what? In a sense, you're absorbing the debt. You're paying in a way. But who's your example? The one that paid for the sins of the world. It's a beautiful thing. So uh, God will change you if you ask sincerely, Father, I need to forgive Harold. There's Harold again. I have people emailing me, who is Harold? <laughs> it's always, if you've been here for the first time, it's always the name I use for the sinful jerk guy. If your name is Harold, I apologize. Who is this Harold? You can forgive Harold by praying, please put it in my heart to let it go and forgive Harold as you have forgiven me, God. I owe you everything. You want me to forgive him? Help me to do so. We reveal the true condition of our heart by the way we treat others. And the real test is when somebody screwed you over and you're willing to let it go. Last thing. Let's make me the bad guy. And I ripped Jeff off for a thousand dollars and he forgives me and I'm a Christian and I go you know what I am really sorry about that listen I should pay back the thousand dollars well that's just the money and he already forgave me so that's the end of that the right thing to do pay him back right there's a material reckoning that can also occur uh, we already talked about that. The torturers in the story, in Greek, it's the same word in Matthew 8, 6, for a guy in hell. Um, uh, suffering anguish, torture. Um, the biggest obstacle to forgiveness, selfishness and pride. Uh, we already talked about that. Yeah, the other school of thought is that the, the punishment, the torturers in the story is the fact that it's eating me alive by not forgiving him for what he's done. Blessed are the merciful, Matthew 5, 7, for they shall obtain, obtain mercy. La uh, one more thing, I keep saying last thing. Anybody here seen the play or the movie Les Miserables? Anybody? Just a few people, uh, six or seven. Um, we've seen it. Uh, there's several movies um, some are better than others, some are musicals, some are not. I won't give away too much, I don't think, if I tell you the story. Um, spoiler alert. There's a guy named Jean Valjean. And uh, there is, he steals a loaf of bread to feed his family. And there's a really strict, we go by the book kind of guy named Javert, who's a cop, basically a fed and he has it in for Jean Valjean and throws him in prison and mistreats him. And he's so bad to him. And eventually Jean Valjean gets out of prison and has a chance to kill Javert, this policeman who treated him so badly. 
And although Jesus is not mentioned in the play, it is a beautiful picture of forgiveness because Jean Valjean has the chance to kill Javert and Javert knows it and he doesn't do it. And he walks away and Jean Valjean uh, walks away and Javert, this strict, we go by the book kind of guy, they don't explain it, but if you're watching the story, you can kind of figure it out. He's so tortured by the fact that this guy forgave me and I don't deserve it, that he kills himself, right? You've seen the play, right? He kills himself because that's the torture of not being forgiving. It will eat you alive. Okay, that's enough of that, Joe, move on. Okay, I hear you. Chapter 19. Oh, look, we're out of time. No, not really. <laughs> Do I wish we were? Yes, because I'll tell you, this is, I'm going to give you several sides of this divorce thing, and it's not easy. And you read all these commentaries, and they don't agree. I'll show you what I mean. But I'll show you the overview of what Jesus is really saying, hopefully, too. Chapter 19, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea. He's going south. He's going into the, the country of Judea. It's part of Israel, the lower kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is. He's heading toward Judea, heading toward the cross, heading toward Jerusalem. To the other side of the Jordan, large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. He's healing mostly in Galilee, the hick country, and the Gentile regions around there before this. Now he's going into the heart of the beast, toward Jerusalem. He's in Judea. The Pharisees we're all familiar with, they are the Jewish religious leaders. They are mostly hypocrite jerks who think they know God's word. They memorize great portions, and they don't know the heart of the word. They just know the letter of the law, and they love what the rabbis have written. All their little commentaries and the man-made rules have taken over Judaism. The, the Pharisees constantly are asking him questions, trying to trap him. They're going to do it again here. Some Pharisees, verse 3, came to him and to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4, haven't you read? He replied that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one, let no man separate. Let's take that first section. Okay, because then it's going to get way harder and hopefully the rapture will occur or we'll run out of time and I won't have to deal with it. Just kidding. So the Pharisees come to trap him. Okay, you say, why is this a trap? Because there were two schools of thought on divorce. Okay, school of thought number one was uh, Rabbi Shammai, who was strict, and he said, they're sort of expert. Divorce is only allowed, like it says in Deuteronomy 24, and yes, we'll look at Deuteronomy 24, for uncleanness, some 
some sexual immorality that occurred between the man and the woman who are married. If sexual immorality occurred, then divorce is allowed. If Harold and his wife Harriet were married and Harold cheated on his wife and slept with some other woman, Harriet, Rabbi Shammai says, this is the strict interpretation, has the right, if she wants to, to get a divorce. Got the picture? We'll talk more about that in a second. But let me give you the other view. The liberal view is the Hillel view. This is another famous rabbi genius. By the way, who cares about these guys? Let's just stick with the Bible, folks. God wrote the Bible. I think he's smarter than both of them put together. But this is where they were at. Hillel said, I want to apologize in advance, ladies. Hillel said you can divorce any woman for any reason you want. Let me give you some examples. If she burned dinner, that's it, honey, you're out. You write her a certificate of divorce. I'm divorcing. A couple people are witnesses. Get out. If she went out of the house with unbound hair, you could divorce her. If she spoke to a man in the streets in public, if she spoke disrespectfully about my parents, grounds for divorce. Oh, your mother is such a, that's it, you're out. Um, if she was a brawling woman, a fighter, or if she was so loud that when she argued, her voice could be heard in the street. My friend Bill said he heard you, honey. You're out. Divorce. Rabbi Akiba took it a step further. You're not going to believe this one. He said it was divorce was okay if a man found a woman he liked better than his wife who was more beautiful. Wow. Okay. Ladies, you must be noticing, what's this? The man can divorce the woman. Was the shoe on the other fit, foot? Can the woman do Not so much. Unbelievable, right? So, like I said, who cares what these rabbis think? What does God think about divorce? But before we get to divorce, we have to talk about marriage. And Jesus is going to do a little teaching here, and he already did, on marriage. They ask him, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? Why is that a trap? Because some of the people in the audience are probably divorced. Some of them, most of them, had the liberal view, yes, for any reason. So if he says, no, strictly it has to be adultery, it has to be uh, infidelity, it has to be an uncleanness of a sexual immorality type nature, he's going to alienate some people and lose some followers, right? So if he's a politician, he needs to learn to say, I think this is something we need to study and really be careful about it. And he says nothing at all, right? And gets out of the thing and didn't even answer it either way. So Jesus is in a conundrum. No, he's not. You know what he says? Why don't we go back to the Bible, guys? He says, have you never read verse 4? And here's the lesson, lesson on marriage. At the beginning, 
The creator made them male and female. Stop right there. We could spend all night just on that. Okay. Number one, male. Let's count the genders. Female. And that's it. Male and female. Okay. So all that talk that you're hearing, male and female. Well, whose opinion? God who made them. Okay. Did you catch the refutation of evolution there? Look at it again. Have you never read that at the beginning, the creator made the male and female? Meaning what? When did they become human beings, male and female? After billions of years of evolution, where they came up the chain from little amoebas to... No, at the beginning, he made them male and female, period. Human beings, at the beginning. Adam and Eve, day six, creation. Did you catch that? Number one, two genders. There's no marriage with any other combination of genders. Male and female. One male, one female. Not one male, 11 females, or three females and one male. I know you know all this, but God knows what he's doing. Pause. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why. Because the building block of society is not business, school, friendships, as important as those things are. It's a family. And God defines a family as a man and a woman. And then he says to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Have little people, right? Kids. If you break down the society to the point that marriages dissolve, and in our country, it's about 50%. And I got news for you. The divorce rate among church-going Christians is about the same. Just slightly better than the outside world. Okay. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? Okay, we covered that. And said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. How many have heard the saying, leave and cleave? There are some marriages are, that are in trouble or were in trouble because one of the people didn't do the leaving thing. What do you mean? I mean, they're so tied with the apron strings to mom, what my mother says goes in our marriage. My dad kind of dictates what we should do. Is not right, right? We are to leave the mother and father. That doesn't mean not respect them and care for them, but it means leave them. And since God said it's not good for man to be alone, cleave to your wife. The word literally means be glued to, to the point that it's one, one flesh. That's how God sees a husband and a wife. Okay. We'll get to why I'm worried about this probably next week, but you'll see. It's all going to be fine. This reason a man will leave his father and mother, and the woman obviously would have to as well, and not be influenced by her mom calling the shots in the house to where the husband is not the head of the household, and be united to his wife. The two become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. So if there's two agendas, they have to come together and figure out the one agenda. If there's two goals in life, I want a house in Hawaii, she says. And he says, you know, I just want a really simple life. And they better figure that out before they get married or she's going to be going 
aloha, right, at some point. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. So uh, Jesus is teaching on marriage, and there's a whole bunch of stuff here. Uh, couples forsake singleness. By the way, God creates the whole world and says it's good very good at the end of chapter one. The one thing that isn't good is it's not good for man to be alone. He makes woman out of her to be his helper and they are to become one. Um, Eve comes out of man's side, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, Genesis 2, 21 and 23. It is not only a physical union, it's a spiritual union to her. One woman, one man, Married till death does them part. That's God's model. Um, when we live in a sinful world, though, I know we're going to get to that part probably next week, unless the rapture comes, and I hope it does. Um, uh, the two become one flesh prevents polygamy. You see the seriousness of somebody cheating on their wife and all of that. We, we won't go into it much here, but maybe next week. Um, well, let's do it now and get it out of the way. Go to Ephesians chapter 5 with me. You say, what does that have to do with anything? You'll see. Ephesians, so go past the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, the two Corinthian books. Then you see Galatians, then Ephesians chapter 5. Chapter 5 is all kinds of instructions about the family. The kids are supposed to obey the parents and... Wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, verse 22. Husbands the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. Do you see that? He's already making a comparison between marriage, the institution of marriage, and the fact that God takes it so seriously because it's supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. He's the ultimate bridegroom, God's gift to humanity. We are his bride. To the extent we have other gods in our lives, we are committing spiritual adultery. Okay. Now, as the church, verse 24, submits to Christ, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You see, notice he's making this comparison. He's not comparing our marriages with, look, at the marriage of um, Harry and Harriet or whoever. It's Christ and the church, the ultimate Marriage, not because of what a good bride we are, but because of what an awesome groom he is. Um, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her, that's the church, to himself, that's Jesus, as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, it's all the church in Christ, husband and wife. Church in Christ, wife and husband. This whole section. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No wonder they're one. Um, verse 29. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it, cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, there's that quote again, a, husband, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, two will become one flesh. Here it comes. This is a profound mystery. What is marriage? But I'm talking about Christ and the church. To fully understand marriage. By the way, there's a, 
At the end of his life, Tim Keller died last year, pastor in New York City, tremendous orator and speaker of the gospel. A friend of mine went to his church when it was like 80 people. It ended up being in an auditorium in New York City, 11 services, if you can imagine. Um, he wrote a book um, about marriage, and the, <laughs> I should have written it down. I have it. I can't think of it right now. Um, anybody know? Say that again. Sacred marriage. Sacred marriage is a small book. No, there's an, I don't think that's the big, there's a big hardcover book. I'll tell you next week. I apologize. I'm trying to remember what it is. Uh, I can't think of it. Darn. It's part of being 69 years old. Anyway, um, this is a profound mystery, verse 32, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. For a husband to know, how much should I love my wife? He needs look no further than, well, how much does Jesus love the church? Wow. Oh, that's a big order. You expect me to? Yes, he does. He's our example. Wives need no, look no further than the church and the proper relationship to their husband, which is Jesus. How much should the, should the church submit Verse 22, um, how much should the husband be the head? The way Christ is the head, the way we submit. We don't go, yeah, you, we know you're up there, Jesus, but we're going to make some rules of our own. We submit 100%, right? Okay, I just wanted to cover that. I'm not going to go into that deeply like we did when we did Ephesians a long time ago. Um, but suffice it to say that Jesus was willing to die for his bride. He gave everything. Um, let's see what uh, God joins two people together. It's spiritually binding before God. I want you to notice it's not just a social contract. Well, we got married in front of a judge. That's great. But you were married in God's sight. Um, separating what God going, joined together is unnatural. It's like ripping apart a body because he sees us as one once we're married. Uh, Malachi 2.16, we'll talk about this next week as well. God says, I hate divorce. That ought to make us perk up our ears and listen. If God hates something, we should hate it too. If God loves something, we should love it, right? Uh, yoked together uh, as the idea of oxen and a plow. They work together. They have a common goal. They pull equally. Okay. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. Uh, the reasons for marriage. Um, number one, it's not good for man to be alone in companionship. Continue, continuing the race, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, it's a divinely appointed union that God created. We can't go outside of it. By the way, um, I, I just heard a thing tonight on the radio uh, before I came here that the divorce rates, uh, the rate is the same, the numbers are declining. You say, how could that be? The rates, the same, the numbers of divorces are declining. You know why? Couples go, let's just live together. Then if they split up, it's not a divorce. It's just it didn't work out after 11 years. See you later, honey. You burnt the breakfast, right? Um, in any case, uh, what's going on here is, uh, uh, here's John MacArthur just whittles it all down. One woman, one man, strong bond, 
one flesh, a work of God, no divorce. What man is, uh, what God has put together, no man should tear asunder kind of thing, tear it apart. Um, in the remaining time, and we'll do it more next week, go to Deuteronomy 24. Um, well, actually, you know what? Don't go there yet. Sorry, I apologize. Let's read verse 7. Because here's where the Pharisees think they've got him. And you see how little they know about Scripture. Matthew 19.7, why then? Jesus just said that no longer two but one flesh. What God's joined together, let no one separate. Verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Did God command divorce? Never. They act like it's a command. They love the fact that the men are in control and the woman better shape up or she's out. They love that. God hates that. Okay. Jesus replied, verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart, because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone, this is where it gets controversial, verse 9, who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciple said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it, it's better not to marry. Do you see that? Now, what's interesting is Jesus replied, verse 11, not everyone can accept this saying or this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Let me explain that right now. He's not saying, not everybody can accept my thing about one woman, one man, cleave together, leave your father and mother, what God's joined together, you can't separate one flesh. He's not saying that's what people can't accept. He's saying, you're right, the disciples. They say, wow, no divorce except for sexual immorality? So burnt breakfast, I have to stay married? If I gain five pounds, she can't divorce me? Or if she gains 10, I can't? And he's, they're saying, if that's the case, then it's maybe it's better not to marry because, wow, this is really hard. And he says to them, you're right, but not everybody can accept that. He's about to explain, and we'll do it next week, the fact that some people remain single because that is a, listen, gift. To be able to remain single and not burn with lust or be tempted with pornography or to sleep around or to just focus on God. That's a gift. Some can do it. Paul, Paul did it. Some of the apostles did it. Peter was married. Jesus did it. Never took a wife, despite what Hollywood says. You know, he married Mary Magdalene and they had kids. Would you give me a break, please? Okay, so next week we'll go into this deeper. Um, let's kind of wrap it up for now. The way that it gets controversial is in an audience this size of around 100 people between Zoom and here, doubtless there's people that, I'm a Christian. Yes, good, that's great, praise God. I'm divorced. Here's my story. And listen, every story is different. The question we're gonna answer next week, and probably there'll be nobody here, the question we're gonna answer next week is, what about that divorce and this divorce and, He's remarried and 
she's remarried and they weren't Christians when they got married or when he cheated on her. And if your husband cheats on you, do you have to divorce him? Or somebody going, no, good one. There's all kinds of different angles for this and it can get dicey because the Bible is silent on a lot of issues. Let me give you another issue. This is a woman talking. My name's Louise, I'm uh, married, and my wife beats me almost every day and he beats the kids. It's not adultery, he's not cheating on me, so I have no grounds for divorce. Or do I? A grounds for separation? You see what I mean? My husband, we had 200,000 in the bank when I married him. Five years later, it's all gone. He gambled it all at the casino. That's grounds for divorce, is it? My husband is a fool and he doesn't handle money well and he buys stupid stuff. We have three boats, nine motorcycles, 11 trucks, nine dogs, and that's why we're broke. I want a divorce all kinds of different my husband's now claiming he's bisexual my husband won't go to church with me my wife uh here's you ever heard this one this is a big one we just grew apart she doesn't meet my needs he doesn't meet my needs we've changed he's changed she's changed do you see what i mean we're dealing with a divine institution of one woman, one man, cleave forever until death do you part. But we're dealing with flawed human beings, so it's complicated. So all I ask is be patient with me. Don't bring anything heavy to throw at me because I'm just trying to read it out of this book and be as fair as I can be, but to not water it down. Because I'll tell you something, God doesn't change. And this book, it needs updating, don't you think? No. No. It's the 21st century. Come on. No. Next week, we'll tackle that. And I'm going to wear a helmet just to be safe. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father, for this lesson, God, and the beauty of your institution of marriage, Father. And in the previous chapter, all the things we discussed about forgiveness, God. And don't the two tie in that husbands need to forgive their wives and wives need to forgive their husbands. There's always stuff to overlook and forgive. May we be so focused on you and what your son did and the unconditional, patient, gracious love and forgiveness that we are able to overlook the sins and forgive those who have sinned against us, carte blanche, 490 plus times. May we not even count them. May we be so enamored and in love with you, God, that your love just shines out of us, your forgiveness, your grace, naturally. Help us to do so, God, by the power of your spirit. If anybody in the sound of my voice, within the sound of my voice, needs to forgive somebody, I pray right now that you would give them the grace to hear and forgive and pray for that forgiveness to be given to them so that they can hand it out to others, Father. Bless these truths, Father. Thank you that your word and you never change. 
We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. It's really important. Have a great night. God bless you. Thanks for being here on Zoom. We'll see you next time.